I think that the best product-led companies, regardless of whether they're open source, are authentic because people will see that and it will come through in the product. So many founders are so charismatic and they're such good storytellers, it's easy to get swept away in what they're telling you. And look, we're optimists by nature. I don't think you can be successful as a founder or a venture investor if you're not an optimist. I mean, the things we do are crazy. Hey everyone, my name's Tom Drummond. Welcome to Venture Confidential. This is a regular podcast featuring candid conversations with top VCs from Silicon Valley. On Venture Confidential, we dive into the fundraising landscape, offer insights on how VCs think about investment, and hear investors' perspectives on what great founders get right. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. If you're interested in learning more about Heavybit, being a guest on this show, or you have a VC-related question, email me at vc at heavybit.com. I'm very excited to say that today we have Dan Skolnick from Trinity Ventures joining us here. Hi, Dan. Welcome. How's it going? Good. Thank you. Good. You uh, pronounced my last name correctly. I've been practicing. <laughs> I've been practicing. It's all part of the media training that we get. Yeah. Well, very excited to have you here. Tell us a little bit about Trinity, first of all. Sure. So we're a classic early stage venture capital firm. Uh, we've been in business for 32 years now. We're investing out of our 12th fund, which is $400 million fund. And when I say we're classic early stage investors, I mean we focus exclusively on early stage investing and, and have been for 32 years. Um, we exclusively invest in what would be considered seed, Series A and Series B rounds and try to be the most helpful partners to early stage companies that we can be. We invest across both um, consumer companies um, and have a long history of investing in consumer companies going back to the early days of Trinity when we were the first investors in Starbucks um, to enterprise and infrastructure software. I have a feeling given that we're at Heavybit, we'll spend more time talking about that part of our business today. Although I'd I'd love to hear about the Starbucks story as well, but, but yeah. And and how about yourself? So how long have you been with the with the firm? I've been at Trinity for over ten years now. Oh wow! Okay, and always focused on enterprise, always focused on infrastructure. Yeah, that, that's my background. I'm a former software engineer and an entrepreneur, so um, it's easiest to invest in the areas that you know well. Does that uh, feel like a lifetime ago, or or do you feel like you're uh, still taking a lot of your entrepreneurial experience and applying it to the startups and the, the ventures you look at today? Yeah, I mean, the thing that is wonderful about this job is that you're learning every day. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. You could be doing it for two years or 20 years, and things change really quickly, and every day there's a new situation that you haven't seen before. So my prior entrepreneurial experience is is definitely still relevant, but I'm learning new things every day. So it's just as likely, if not more likely, that I'm going to bring my experience as an investor and and board member observing tens of startups, hundreds of startups to bear than my previous entrepreneurial experience. Sure. You've been a pretty active investor this year, I understand. You guys are doing deals at quite pace. I was going back through Crunchbase and looking at some of the deals that you've done this year. I mean, just just recently you guys announced an investment in uh, in Gatsby, we share a lot of investments together in uh, Meteor and PagerDuty and Contentful and a whole bunch of other stuff. 
How has 2018 been treating you so far? So 2018 has been great. Um, I, I will say, though, that the, I'm, I'm sure that the crunch-based data doesn't reflect the reality of our investment pace because in many cases, we'll, there are companies that we invested in last year, Ryan. such as... I think W and B weights and biases was mm-hmm. last year, for example, but we didn't announce the funding until this year, mm-hmm. uh, and so it shows up in the crunch base analysis as Trinity is on a real investment tear. Right, um, right. The reality is, it, it might not be that interesting to the audience, but a part of Trinity's strategy is actually that we invest in a consistent pace every year. Mm. And that comes out of learnings from previous economic cycles where the pattern that you see in the venture industry is that when times are good, everything speeds up and yeah. firms start blowing through their funds really quickly. And and you know, 20 years ago, Trinity made that mistake during the dot-com bubble, and, and that came back to haunt us. So ever since then, one of the things that we've done to moderate our investing pace is to have a strategy to be consistent which it actually helps you in down markets and up markets because it means that in a in a in a frothy market like today's market you don't invest too quickly and get overexposed in a down market it actually forces you to invest and it's the best time to be investing mm-hmm. and and it's it's the best time to be investing but psychologically if you can remember back to 2008 2009 2010 it's actually really hard to invest because Today, we're optimistic about yeah. everything, right? Any company comes in through the heavy bit doors, and you're like, this is going to be huge. <laughs> but in, in 2009, it felt like the world was falling apart. And yeah. so you, every, it's like, imagine every, every company walking through these doors, and you think, this is never going to work. Right. So Just, how do you ever get an investment done, right? So it, it, we've found that strategy has um, positive ramifications on, on the way that we operate. And, and when you talk about consistent, is that you think about that in terms of the number of deals? It's or opportunities the number of deals, the number of uh, the amount of dollars we deploy every right, year, right. And, and we are very consistent. If you look at our fundraising pace at Trinity, um, how often we raise a new fund, it's been the same for a very long time. So it's roughly three and a half years is our fund cycle. Right. Right. Okay. Cool. And so, I mean, you mentioned that you think this is a frothy part of the market, or in the the Close to the top of the market. How close are we? Is there a top to this market? Can it get frothier? Yeah. Uh, you, you, where are we in the cycle? You asked the, me this question before we sat down uh, for this interview, and I'll give you the same answer, which is I've been calling the top of the market for at least, I guess, six years now. <laughs> right. And so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but as you said, you're consistently investing. Is that, did you not get worried about? You know, putting money to work at such kind of high high prices or high valuations versus, you know, trying to get your ownership level, or do you just scale your check size with where the valuations are at? Well, um, I mean, a, a couple things. I mean, we're paid to invest, and there are good opportunities for investment in any environment, whether it's a frothy environment or a or a down market. One of the reasons why we've stuck to our knitting as early stage investors. Besides the fact that, I mean, we're passionate about it. I was a two-time entrepreneur before I became a venture capitalist, and the firm was founded by a three-time venture-backed entrepreneur. Most of my partners are former entrepreneurs, so we just love early stage because you know we lived it at one point when, when we were all founders. But the other part of the reason why we've stuck to our knitting in early stage is that we think that um, early there are 
good investment opportunities at the early stage in any environment. So mm -hmm. even if valuations are higher than they ever have been, the reality is that relative to where our great companies are going to exit, right. the entry valuations that we are paying are are pretty low. And you know, if you think about a, a company like New Relic, just to use an example from my portfolio, I mean, it's trading. I don't know what it's trading at today, but it's been jumping. The market's been very vol volatile, but it's you know trading somewhere between probably five and a half and six and a half billion dollar mm -hmm. market cap. Whether we got in at a five million pre or fifteen million pre, it actually doesn't matter that much in in terms of how meaningful the return is to our fund. Sure, sure. That that calculus changes if you're a late stage investor and your your entry price is five hundred million or a billion dollars. And are you as as a firm are you following on on all your investments and and you know thinking about not just when you make a series seed investment say are you taking a significant portion of the fund and setting that aside to do a Series A and your pro rata in the B and C and so on? When we do seed investments, it's not a spray and pray strategy. Mm. At, at the seed level, we're, we're buying meaningful ownership and we're taking board seats and we're treating those companies like any other Trinity portfolio company, which it means they get our full attention and engagement and all of the um, value-added services that we provide to our more mature companies as well. And so what does that what does that mean for a kind of typical seed stage company that raising one to two million dollars or two to three million dollars from Trinity and, and putting a board together? I mean, how does that if I'm an early stage entrepreneur, what what can I expect in terms of how to work with Trinity? That's a that's a good question. I mean, we are philosophically we're active and engaged investors, but we want our entrepreneurs to drive the engagement. We don't dictate a certain like format or method or system of in, engaging with us, and um, we're oriented towards building relationships and really being partners with our entrepreneurs. So, what ends up happening typically? I mean, I know this sounds fluffy and unstructured, but what typically happens with a seed stage company? We're probably meeting with them more frequently than we do with later stage. Companies. I mean, I have Serverless, which is a heavy bit company, for example. I have coffee with Austin um, minimum every two weeks, and we have board meetings, I think, every month. And I want to be available to him and, and my other entrepreneurs for whatever they need. And it, it turns out generally at the seed stage, you could use more help than you can yeah. when you're Later on, you have more money in the bank, you have more invest, more board members around the table, and you have a management team that you can lean on. And so, you know, we help with things like strategy, business strategy, pricing and packaging, lots and lots of recruiting. But it really just depends on what the company needs. I find that at the very earliest stages, the seed stage, the path is there's no one path for how the company gets built. In terms of building a, a venture firm, though, that's kind of one that adds a lot of value, mm -hmm. um, is there a separate operations team or do you have non-investing operating partners that, that, uh, or a staff that, that works with portfolio companies? or is it We just don't. So we're an old-school venture model and we've tried to stay true to those roots. And what I mean by that is we make sure that our partners aren't on too many boards. Right. Such that when a general partner joins the board of a company, that person actually has time 
to get to know the company, to build a relationship with the entrepreneur, and be active and engaged with the company. And we've decided that that's a better model, at least for us, and our company seem to like it. There are other models out there in the venture industry that they have merit, they're just different. But when we think back to when we were entrepreneurs ourselves, we're trying to build the firm that we would have wanted. And mm. the firm that we would have wanted was one where the partner who joins our board, you know, you know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you're making this big decision around what, you know, not even what firm you're going to work with, but really what partner yeah. is going to join your board. And then to have, to us, it doesn't make sense to have that partner join the board and then not be engaged and never do anything and you're handed off to, other folks, and so we don't operate that way. So we've kept our fund size small and the number of partners relative to the fund size at such a at a at a ratio where, even with our continuous pace of investing, no single partner ever gets overloaded on board seats. I should have asked you how many partners are in the the partnership right now. We have six general partners. Right oh now. right, okay, okay, cool. Let's talk about working with early stage companies because that's you know, clearly kind of passion of yours. In fact, maybe before we talk about working with them, we talk about picking them. Mm-hmm. You meet dozens of founders every week, hundreds of founders. What's your kind of mental process for evaluating those early stage companies that you, you meet? What are the things that you're really looking for? I think the easier things are, all, all of us at Trinity have, have focus areas in terms of what markets we invest in. And we know our markets very well. So I invest in a lot of developer companies, a lot of open source companies, a lot of enterprise infrastructure companies. If you look at my portfolio, I have it, it's concentrated in those areas. So I know those markets very well. So when in, And I know all the players, both startups and big companies, in, in the areas that I own for Trinity, just like my partners know their markets very, very well. And so it's fairly easy when an entrepreneur comes in to to pitch me, for example. I have a fairly easy time saying, this is an interesting part of the market to be in or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just comes from... Being steeped in the industry. Yeah, and, and years of working with companies in the industry um, so and building you, a network. It sounds like you get to skip a lot of the, you know, how big is the market kind of questions. Yeah, I, I actually tell most entrepreneurs, like, that you know they'll always have a slide like cloud computing is a big thing. It was just like we can skip the next two slides right. on the deck. Seriously, yeah, yeah. you do not have to convince me that cloud computing is a big thing or that developer oriented businesses are actually the future. Like I get it, okay, right. <laughs> um, and or or I'm wrong and I'm going to fail as a venture capitalist because I put you know all of my money into that. Um, sure, you and me both. So yeah. <laughs> the thing we spend a lot of time on at Trinity collectively. And um, I spend a lot of time thinking about personally is how do you assess entrepreneurial talent at the very earliest stages, especially when you're investing in entrepreneurs who haven't done it before. It's relatively easier when you have someone like Lou Cerny at at New Relic who Mm. had started Wiley and Built it up to sixty million of revenue and sold it for four hundred million. It's 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 relatively easier to look at a guy like Lou and say this is a guy who's going to be a great entrepreneur. But how do you know Solomon Hikes at Docker is yeah. going to be a great entrepreneur or Lucas Bewald at Figure Eight and and WB and um, some of the other great um, entrepreneurs we back? And there are attributes that we're looking for when we're um, uh, meeting with them, and it's things like passion and charisma and insight 
and expertise in the area that they're working in. I've always thought that, that being a good venture investor is, is as much about assessing people as it's about assessing markets or products or, or even traction, really. It's being able to like look across the table and say, do we think this person can execute? For me, it's something of a kind of black art or it's, it's kind of, you know, there is a set of ingredients, but there's also a certain alchemy that, that goes on, right? It's not simply enough to say that this person has these specific attributes and therefore we think they're going to be a successful founder because I mean there's you know lots of just to take take an example right you can be all of those things and be a complete egomaniac and you'll never be able to get people to work kind of with you or uh, be able to lead a team effectively right how do you normalize that across the, the partnership how do you get everyone in a partnership to think the same way or approach the, the deals in the same way because well your idea of who good entrepreneur is could be different from you know the the next to- totally. I mean that is the key. That's the key question. And within the a venture partnership, how you do that is is hard. And 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 what we do at Trinity is we spend a lot of time defining what we think the attributes are of successful entrepreneurs to make sure that we're all using the words the same way and we mm-hmm. think they mean the same thing. It's like if you say this person has grit. And grit is an important attribute in an entrepreneur. How do I know that your definition of grit is the same as my definition of grit? Or how do I know that what's our definition of charisma? I mean, I think one interesting thing in developer-oriented businesses is there is a certain type of charisma that really resonates with developers Mm -hmm. that may not resonate with... Ordinary human beings. Ordinary human <laughs> beings. There's nothing. I mean, it's it's funny to think about, but it's it. There's nothing wrong with it, and and you're looking for a slightly different type of charisma in a leader of a developer oriented company than a say like Dave Asprey at, at Bulletproof, which is mm-hmm. kind of who's who's building a mainstream consumer brand, right? And right. so it's it's making sure that we get on the same page about what all those things mean. Yeah. That we have deep discussions when we're evaluating. Entrepreneurs, and then that we're tracking and learning over time, and we're refining our definitions and the way that we assess people. How much of it do you think is is your own assessment versus you know referenced assessment? People coming to you and saying this guy, this gal is great, or you know you going and having other founders or, or other execs vouching for individuals. We put almost zero weight on on list references. First right. of all, sure. we put a ton of weight on back channel references. Mm-hmm. So in our diligence process, that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time, at least on the on the team reference side, is just all back channel. We put an enormous amount of weight. In many cases, we put more weight on that than our own assessments because it's so easy. It, especially, I mean, so many founders are so charismatic. Yeah. They're so smart and they're such good storytellers. It's It's easy to get... Swept away in mm-hmm. what they're telling you, and look, we're optimists by by nature, right? I, I don't think you can be successful as a founder or a venture investor if you're not an optimist. I mean, the things we do are crazy. Like you know, most of the time, these companies aren't going to work, and they shouldn't work, and we yeah. invest in them anyway. And so it's easy to get swept up in it. So the third party perspective that the referencing mm-hmm. provides it grounds you. I think that in in hiring, I mean, I, I I tell the same thing to to my CEOs, my founders who are building their teams. It's invest in in back channel references, mm. and and we will help you with that. 
Do you spend a lot of time working with hiring for your companies? It's the number one thing we do. Yeah, it's the number one thing we do. Uh, and what does that look like? I mean, you know, is it mostly you spending time with candidates? Is you the partnership sourcing candidates, or is it? it it's it, so it, it generally starts with us working in partnership with the founder to understand what the organizational needs of the business are. Mm-hmm. So that's step one. Who do you need to hire? When do you need to hire? Why are you hiring these people? Is it the right time? What does the spec look like? And then we spend a huge amount of time sourcing folks, working with recruiters. If we hire executive search firms, we're on the cadence calls every week with the founder and the and the search firm, unless unless the founder doesn't want us, but typically right. they want us. We will actively screen candidates. So I'll, I'll tell my founders, my partners do the same thing. Like, look, if if this is if you're feeling like you're too busy and you want me to take a bunch of the first meetings for you, sure, happy to do, happy to do that. Because the most important thing yeah. we can do to help our companies. So, and then we have processes internally to source great candidates at Trinity that we can spread across the portfolio. So we keep track of the most. Um, talented executives. It usually starts by keeping track of the most t- talented executives in our portfolio, mm-hmm. and and we know you know there's there's not much lifetime employment in Silicon Valley. Right, um, sure. You know, generally after two or four or six years, they're gonna even that if that if a given company is very successful, the executives are probably gonna turn over at various points, and so we try to keep them very close, and we will try to direct them to to opportunities in our portfolio. Is there? Do you find there's a lot of Cross portfolio support out of kind of this talent coordination or sourcing or hiring piece. Do you get your portfolio together a lot to talk to one another? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean that that's the other benefit that comes from the fairly specialized sector focused per partner, right? I have, I don't know, five open source companies in my portfolio right now. That's probably the number, and they're the founders and various. Executives at the company, functional area uh, leaders, are talking to each other all the time. That's great. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned open source. Do you find that there are things that are specific to building an open source business versus a another, say, traditional closed source enterprise software business? Or is there a reason you bring those open source companies together specifically? Yes, I mean, so I think that uh, building open source companies is very different from building traditional enterprise software businesses. It's more similar to building high velocity SaaS businesses than anything else. So even though New Relic is an open source, for example, or Pipefy, mm-hmm. one of my other com- SaaS B two B SaaS companies, is not open source. The thing that all these companies have in common, whether they're open source or not, is that they are product-led business models with uh, high-velocity uh, go-to-market motions, um, where you're trying using primarily online channels to bring as many people into the product as possible, converting them into paying customers as quickly as possible, and then growing those customers over time. And um, so I think there's a lot of similarities in the open source world to high velocity SaaS, mm-hmm. where open source has some unique dynamics is around the open source community itself and how you manage that. And you have to be a, a bit more intentional and careful about how you manage that. Um, and it's just a, a dynamic that doesn't exist 
in most non-open source B2B SaaS companies. Does that mean you just as, a, as an organization need to be slightly more human or you need to be, I mean, there's something around like having a better marketing competency or, or having a stronger customer support competency than you might in other? I think that the best product-led companies, regardless of whether they're open source, are authentic mm-hmm. because people will see through that. Um, and it will come through in the product, right? They're, they're almost authentic by nature because it requires building a great product. And, and to build a great product, you have to have an enormous amount of customer empathy. Sure. And so you can't fake it. Um, and so these companies are very genuine. There are nuances around the how you manage an open source community effectively that are important to know. And it goes beyond just authenticity and good marketing. It requires really good community engagement. It requires an enormous amount of transparency. The open source community will actually accept a lot of different business models, decisions, whatever, as long as you're transparent about it. And it's when you try to hide things that you get into trouble. Like, for example... You can actually do more user behavior tracking in open source than most people expect. You mean and kind of gathering user telemetry? Yeah, g- gathering user telemetry. And I think a lot of um, open source founders don't realize that, so they're building their businesses blind because they work on the assumption that the open source community won't tolerate it. In fact, from what I've seen, the open source community will tolerate it as long as you're very transparent about it and you give the users the, an easy way to turn it off and mm. to know whether it's on and all of those kinds of things. And you have to be very good about how you accept contributions from the community. And you also you have to be very thoughtful about where you're going with your product roadmap, what's going into the commercial version, what's going into the open source version, and you have to communicate your product roadmap, right? So closed source companies don't have to think about that, right? They, they yeah. own their product roadmap, and the world finds out about their product roadmap when, you, when they release the product. And the open source world doesn't work that way. And so there are just a bunch of nuances there that you have to be very careful about. But it's not, it's not hard to navigate as long as you know the, the rules of the road, so to speak. Rule number one, be transparent. Yeah, You brought up this idea of what, what goes into the commercial product versus what stays open source. Uh, that's long been, I suppose, one of the criticisms of open source companies is that you're, you're giving away a lot of the products, so what can you really charge for? Do you think that's still valid today? I mean, there are some very successful large open source companies now. But like, Is that a valid criticism or is that uh, no longer apply? I don't, I don't think it's a... Criticism that's unique to open source. Um, if you look at freemium SaaS businesses, look at look at Slack. There's a free version of Slack. There's a paid version of Slack. There's a free version of New Relic. There's a paid version. There's a free version of GitHub. There's a paid version. In any of these companies, you have to be very thoughtful about and intentional about what's going to be in the free version and what's going to be in the paid version. It's not a problem that's unique to open source. It is. A, it can be a hard problem to sell, but if you Solve it, you can build very powerful business models. And we've seen that in today's market with the 
phenomenal growth of some of these companies. Isn't it slightly more complicated than that than 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 the freemium user might have? Because in many instances, these developers are saying, "Well, I don't want to pay for that because I can run it myself," or "I don't want to pay for that because I could build it myself." Right? Mm-hmm. Unlike a freemium SaaS product, I can extend the product or the software as I choose. And you know, as, as I'm sure you know, developers notoriously uh, overestimate or uh, underestimate how long it takes to build good product or develop something and overestimate their ability to uh, reinvent what's been invented elsewhere. So the reality is that the vast majority of your revenue is going to come from larger enterprises who are your customers, not from startups or individual developers who are using your product. So the key to making these models work is to make your to orient your commercial product roadmap around the features and functionality that's valuable to the big companies. And they will typically decide that it is better to buy and to have the support of a commercial vendor than to build it themselves. And then you can afford to give away your software to the smaller customers or just charge them much, much less money. Are there good examples of that product separation or that that kind of revenue distribution in your portfolio? I mean, you know, if you think about, I don't know, Docker or Meteor or whomever, like are there are there cases where you can see that? What's a good example of that happening? Yeah, for for sure. I mean, I can give you a couple examples. I mean, um, so in influx data, I mean, this was a super controversial thing at a certain level because we didn't handle it well with the community, but conceptually we did the right thing, which is if you need clustering of the database and high availability, that is a paid version. And we have made the single server version of the database as performant as possible. And you can scale it up on it pretty far on a single box. So what that means is that for most smaller organizations, if they don't want to pay anything, they're going to do just fine with the single server version because it actually... It scales well. Scales very well to their needs. But if you're an enterprise scaling beyond where a typical small company is going to go, not only are you going to need the clustering support, but also you're going to want high availability, failover, you know, multi-data center replication type so, features because you're, you know, maybe you have a bigger application, you're probably more risk averse. So there's a really clean separation there. Just Those, on that, yeah. just just probably worth like just 10 seconds on what Influx Data does? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. Influx uh, Data makes the leading open source time series database, which is uh, called Influx DB, believe it or not. And uh, it's, it's super popular for a lot of metrics applications, but also a lot of me- metrics and, and, and IoT, because mm-hmm. all those connected devices out there, whether it's your you know, Tesla, your Nest thermostat, or a windmill somewhere, are all generating time series metrics and you need a way to collect all that and and then make the data usable and actionable um, and it turns out that time series data is growing so exponentially that it has surpassed the capabilities of traditional relational databases to to handle that data so a purpose built database becomes really important and necessary for that market good stuff oh, yeah i didn't want to interrupt your thought no no that the, that that's okay i uh, you know, Docker has a slightly different model. This just is is valid. I mean, mm-hmm. the the container technology, the uh, Docker desktop technology is all free and open source. And then we have, I, and I'm simplifying it a little bit because there's a lot of nuance here, and 
Sure. We don't have all day, but there is an enterprise suite that is geared towards the needs of of enterprises that need things like a way to migrate their legacy apps into containers. That's a commercial product. They need ways to enforce policies across their development teams and production systems. And, and there's a list of features like that. But the Docker enterprise offering has all of those things that really big companies need uh, more than any anyone else. So we're able to give away a lot of software to smaller companies, to startups, and monetize the, the companies that can afford to pay us and also, frankly, prefer to pay for things sure. and get support and get packaged software rather than having to and peace of mind, right? And exactly. And, and look, I mean, I think you know, Docker's given you know amazing piece of technology to millions of developers around the world. That is an enormous community. A lot of these projects have smaller developer communities or smaller open source communities that are say just just starting out. How do you think about putting a price on that community or valuing a an open source company when uh, it's uh, you know this? No paid product yet. There's uh, no customers, no revenue, no nothing. Like they have an interesting open source project and some people using it. But how do you think about investing in something like that? How do you value it? What I'm looking for is community momentum mm-hmm. in two forms. One is the obvious thing, which is the sheer growth rate of the community. And I want to get to the truest metrics possible, right? So, so GitHub stars, downloads. Often these are vanity metrics. Mm. They're not actually, they may be directionally correct, but they're not accurate measures of how much momentum there is behind the the community. So we'll ask the team to peel back the layers of the onion until we feel confident that we see what's going on with the actual numerical growth of the community. The other thing we're looking for is a community that's really passionate about the project. Mm-hmm. And when we see those two things, we actually at Trinity don't care whether there's any monetization, whether there's even a monetization strategy. Right. I mean, usually there'll be some kind of story. Maybe it's half baked, but I mean, honestly, we don't care. But but I think this varies from investor to investor. We have a lot of experience in open source, yeah. So we feel very confident that if we can find a community that we think an open source project that's in a interesting market and has some momentum behind it and a great product that we can figure out over time how to monetize it and we've done that time and time again and we feel very confident in that i think if you talk to investors who are less experienced with and therefore comfortable with open source you'll get a different answer you guys have just or recently led a seed investment in gaspjs does that fit into that same bucket for you? Passionate community of developers, you know, growth metrics or momentum that that's um, enormous and growing for you. We'd love to hear more about. Yeah, Gatsby is a great example. When we funded Gatsby, the company it had either just been formed or it was literally in the process of being formed, and the company was all of Kyle. And Sam, mm-hmm. uh, and nobody, nobody else, and 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 even Sam, I think, had recently because Kyle started this Gatsby as a personal project, so even Sam had 
joined relatively recently. Actually, when they were pitching us, I think Sam hadn't left his full-time job yet. So it was that early. Wow. But what we saw was an enormous amount of community growth and an enormous amount of enthusiasm for the product. Mm. And we also saw lots of companies actually using it in production. And, And one of the metrics that the team tracks is the number of, I think, top... 500,000 sites in the world that are using Gatsby, and it ticks up at a pretty good rate month over month. It's remarkable. That's awesome. Gatsby, from a, from a community growth perspective, is the fastest community growth that I've ever seen in an early-stage open-source project um, outside of Docker, and it's pretty close to Docker. I mean, a, Docker is a real outlier, mm. um, and, and Gatsby is doing very, very well by comparison. So that was enough to get us excited, plus the fact that our assessment of Kyle and Sam was that they are exceptional entrepreneurs. Awesome, awesome. Um, all right. Well, I'll I'll throw this over to you. Are there, th- sure. are there things that you'd like us to talk more about? I mean, I can talk. I'm a VC, so I can ramble on about all sorts of. You know, as I say, most of the folks who listen are kind of entrepreneurs, and they're trying to get into your meeting calendar, uh, if not your head. <laughs> so part of that is just people can't want to come and talk to you. And then for them knowing, you know, what are the buttons to push? You know, if if someone writes you an email and says, "Hey, you know, uh, Dan, I heard you on the podcast and um, really love what you were talking about. You know, how community is important. Well, we have these are my community numbers. What do you think?" Kind of thing. Right. The the question really is, what's the most successful way for people to get a meeting with me or most venture capitalists. Yeah, I, I'm a not? little bit different than absolutely. I'm always maybe the average that. beast, but I, I one thing I think is true is that going through trusted referrals is always, always, always the best way to get an introduction to a venture capitalist. We get an enormous amount of inbound email. Mm-hmm. And um, there's typically not enough time. Like all of us, almost all of us publish our email addresses. Right. right? So. Dan at TrinityAdventures.com, not hard to track down. But if you just throw an email over the transom, the yeah. chances that I or any other venture capitalist is going to get to it is slim. And we're so well connected. Like if we're second degree connected to almost every entrepreneur that we that that we've ever met, whether we were introduced to them or just met them randomly out on the street, it means that that entrepreneur could should Make be is also secondary <laughs> connected yeah. to us. So you should be able to get an introduction, and and those introductions go a long way. But even then, you know, again, you're fielding a lot of inbound intros mm-hmm. or inbound requests for your time. I mean, what are the things that pique your interest when you yeah. when you see an intro? When you see a uh, obviously it comes from a trusted party, but what else are the other things that you? Yeah, so, so for me, it is if you can demonstrate that you have a great product, that your customers or users, whether they're paid or not, are super enthusiastic about. That is one thing, and because I I bias towards as I as I mentioned earlier, I bias towards investing in product led companies and business models, and so I want to know that you can build great product and the the real sign of great product is not whether i look at the product and think that it's awesome or whether you tell me mm-hmm. that the product is awesome it's that the people who actually need to use it to solve some business problem 
think that it's awesome and are willing to speak up about that, whether it's to me directly or on Twitter or yeah. in support emails to you or through the fact that they're engaged with the product every day or they're paying you money for the product, mm-hmm. right? And the second thing is, especially if, if you're building a, a high-velocity business, whether it's a freemium SaaS business or an open-source business, is some kind of user momentum, even if it's early. And in an open-source business in particular, we want to see that you can start building a community. Because that not everybody can do it, and there are special founders that can build really big, vibrant open-source communities so you need to show some evidence that that's starting to happen. Do you have a you know rule of thumb or yardstick that you say this is a decent sized community now? What's what's enough? Developers? Yeah, pe- people always ask that uh, question. How many, what's and the I, magic number? I always give an an unsatisfying answer to that question, which is the number doesn't matter. Okay, uh, it's the growth rate, hmm. and so it could be small, uh, but just show me that it's growing quickly. And so, you know, if you're growing 10% week over week and you've you've done that for multiple weeks in a row and you can kind of explain why it's happening and expect that it's going to continue happening for a while, then that, you know, things like that get pretty exciting, but it's not a hard and fast number cuz I've invested in in companies like Gatsby that had enormous communities even before they started the company or Companies like Influx Data that had small communities at the time that we invested, but were growing very rapidly month over month for many, many months in a row. I mean, it sounds like it's never too early then to get in touch with you. If I'm an entrepreneur with a small community that's growing well, uh, you guys are happy to have a conversation and, and build that relationship, uh, even if the maybe the absolute number is not that big. Absolutely, and I think I think Influx Data is a great example of that. I mean, it had a relatively small community at the time that we invested. Serverless didn't have a huge community at the time we invested. It does today. You know, Gatsby's an outlier. The other thing is, at least at Trinity and in venture firms, you know, are different in this way. But we, you know, given that our partners. When we join the board, we take our commitment as board members very seriously, and we we promise to be active and engaged with our our companies, and we limit the number of board seats we take. For us, it's like joining a board is a big deal, yeah. and the the more and the longer we can get to know an entrepreneur, the better, because it really is a marriage. I mean, it's it's we want to work with people that we like. Um, that we feel like we can build trusted relationships with, people we feel like we can be real with, and and have have a productive relationship. And it's if the first time we're meeting you is when you're, you know, a week away from getting a term sheet, you know, that's a hard, tricky time to really assess whether the marriage is going to work well. And so it's the, the venture equivalent of a Vegas wedding. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think a lot of entrepreneurs make a mistake when they don't view fundraising as a, a relationship-oriented process. And they, they end up, uh, I mean, your board members really matter and they end up in bad situations with their board or suboptimal situations with their board. How do you kind of square that with other advice that says, you know, 
you shouldn't be talking to VCs outside of a fundraise. You should be focused on being heads down and building the business. I think the right balance there is that you should have a small number of investors that you think would be a good fit for your company that you meet with on a regular basis. And by regular basis, we're not talking about every week or even every month. It might be twice a year. It mm-hmm. might be once a quarter. It's not that big of a time commitment. And by the way, I'm giving, I'm, I'm saying the exact advice that I give to my CEOs mm-hmm. after I've invested. It's pick two to four investors, so it's not a huge number, that you think might be a good fit for your next round and build a relationship with them, which maybe means meeting them maximum three or four times a year, but more likely once or twice a year. So if you think about that time commitment, you're spending, so if it's across four people and with each of them you're spending three hours, let's say you have two meetings that mm-hmm. are you know 90 minutes each or something like that, you're, you're talking about, what was it, what did I just say, four times three, so it's 12 hours out of your year to decide who you're going to get married to. It's not that big of an investment for something that is a hugely impactful decision on your company. Good stuff. Dan, well, thank you very much for joining us. That was, uh, that was fantastic. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? <laughs> Through a uh, warm introduction Bingo. to dan at trinityventures.com. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential, brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks from top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders. 